0: This is episode number 92 of Patrick Jones Baseball. On this episode, we have Dr. Stephen Oster, who is a founder of the Baseball Development Group in Toronto, Canada. Um, Dr. Oster talks a lot about his background in pitching. He pitched at Cornell University, and he talks a a lot about um, the whole Ivy League experience and what that was like. And we get really into... um, developing pitchers developing youth pitchers um, should there be an innings limit should there be a pitch count should you take time off in the off season? yes or no um, we cover a lot of ground on, on the pitching part of it this episode of the podcast is brought to you by blast motion blast motion is a bat sensor you put on the end of your bat very easy to set up tracks how long you're on playing with the pitch for time to contact bat speed you type in code PJB25 and you will receive $25 off. So head on over to blastmotion.com, type in code PJB25 for $25 off. Ladies and gentlemen, please give it up for Dr. Stephen Osterer. <laughs> All right, we are now live with Dr. Stephen Oster of the Baseball Development Group. Really appreciate you coming on today, man.
1: Thanks for having me, Patrick. Glad to be here.
0: Well, it's Thanksgiving, so happy Thanksgiving. We're recording this. um, Again, thanks a lot for coming on 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 a holiday.
1: (laughs) It's uh, it's not Canadian Thanksgiving for us, so I'm good over here, but. Oh, that's uh, right, that's right. Yeah, all the American listeners, but uh, yeah, we have our own Thanksgiving because we're—I
0: guess we're special. <laughs> so, did you grow up always, or did you grow up in Canada?
1: Yeah, I grew up in Canada, so um, yeah, I, I you know grew up with that, but uh, yeah, I went to uh, school in the states, uh, so I'm accustomed to the dual Thanksgiving. We kind of always get that, which is nice, but um, yeah, not so much anymore. <laughs> Where did you go to school? I went to Cornell. Okay. Um, yeah. So I mean, uh I pitched there, uh rather poorly, but you know, got through four years of uh you know, playing varsity baseball at Cornell and, and survived academically. But uh yeah, it was uh it was four good years in Ithaca. It was cold. Um, you know, a little bit colder than where I grew up, but it is what it is. Um had a great time and really uh really enjoyed my time there.
0: Yeah, how did you like um, playing in the Ivy League and just the Ivy League experience? Because you hear so many people um, sometimes, you know, say that the, the the kids who go there are all like rich and snobby and and this and that. What was it really like?
1: Uh, I I didn't get that uh, that impression. Um, you know, I guess Cornell it is an Ivy League school. Um, it's you know a lot bigger than some of the other Ivy League schools, so maybe you know uh people's experiences with some of the other schools might be different but uh you know from you know from what uh, my experiences were with that school it was you know far from rich and snobby players um on the team um you know so a little bit different than that but you know in general most of the guys were you know pretty awesome um yeah i had a great time we had a really tight team uh, which makes life a lot easier uh you know when you're going through some of the academic uh rigors of of you know some of the, the programs that you might be having at, at that type of school so um we were really tight knit uh you know and you know maybe that's you know because of the academic struggles where we all went to the library together and you know wanted to <laughs> you know maybe uh yeah, quit at times but uh yeah, the the experience itself was fantastic. Um, you know, the group of guys were fantastic. We had a great time. So, um, you know, I I didn't get any of those vibes at all. Um, you know, from from my experience, but who knows? You know, if you went to maybe a smaller Ivy League school, it might be a little bit different.
0: And then from the scholarship standpoint, they don't give scholarships in the Ivy League. Is that correct?
1: That's right. They don't. Uh, they don't give scholarships. They give uh, essentially grant money, uh, or financial aid if, if you need it. So, uh, you know, depending on, on where you are on that spectrum, uh, you know, they, they can help you out from, uh, you know, financial perspective, but no, there's no, there's no strict scholarship. Um, you know, there's no fear of underperforming. You lose your scholarship and, and have to find a new school. So, uh, you know, part of that, uh, I guess, you know, helps out, uh, yeah, you're really enjoying your time a little bit more not having that sort of pressure, which is
0: you know kind of nice. When you were there, did you um, know that you wanted to get into baseball when you were after you graduated?
1: I, I was it was in the back of my mind. Um, you know I, I went into that school. Uh, so in in my last year of high school, you know, I, uh, I ended up signing on to go to Cornell, but at the time uh, I was dealing with some elbow issues. Uh, pretty much got thrown around because uh, I grew up in, in Ottawa, uh, which is not really a baseball hotbed. Um, I got thrown around a bunch of different you know doctors had a, a couple different MRIs and, and um, essentially no one really could figure out what was going on. I ended up going to uh, getting into the uh, to see the orthopedic surgeon for the Blue Jays at the time, and uh, she looked at my MRI and, and essentially just referred me to the Blue Jays chiropractor. Um, so, yeah, that that was an interesting uh, experience because yeah, you know, I really didn't have any idea what a chiropractor was. Uh, you know, it was going to do for an elbow. Uh, essentially, I got uh, I got some active release and some acupuncture and then was referred to another chiropractor back home. We did the same thing. Uh, you know, after about three months, I was totally healed, totally back to normal. Um, and then ended up going to Cornell and never had another serious injury, which is great. Um, so that was in the back of my head that, you know, I wanted to potentially be involved, uh, in baseball from a therapeutic standpoint, you know, the whole time I wasn't you know necessarily a hundred percent committed to that idea while I was there. Um, but, you know, as I, as I drew closer to graduation, I knew that that's kind of the avenue that I wanted to take. So, um, yeah, I guess, yeah, towards the end, I had a good, good idea on it. But, you know, when you're at, at that sort of school and, um, you know, everyone else is taking you know, a wide variety of courses, um, you, know, you you kind of, you know, think about potentially doing other things. But eventually I landed on, on wanting to get into the therapy side of things um, and performance side of things for baseball.
0: So when you were done with graduation at Cornell, um, did you go to grad school too, or what did you do next?
1: So right after, um, yeah, I went to the Canadian Memorial Chiropractic College. Uh, there's only one chiropractic school in Canada uh, that speaks English. There's there's a French one out in Quebec, but um, I went to that school, which is a four-year program in Toronto, um, and you know, spent the four years, obviously, completing my degree at the time. Uh, while doing it, I, I started, uh, training baseball players and, um, acting as a pitching coach. So, yeah, I started to get involved with in baseball, um, you know, after a couple of year hiatus started to get back involved and, uh, you know, really fell in love with that whole process from, I guess, a, a different vantage point, um, from being a player. So, you know, I, I was involved with this, well, the whole time while being at Cairo school and, you know, that really, it just snowballed for me. So. Um, you know, I knew I really wanted to be involved with baseball from a therapy standpoint. And then as I started getting into, you know, the training and, and the coaching, I knew that, uh, you know, I wanted to maybe see what I could do from an integration standpoint, and see how I could maybe wear a couple different hats. Um, so, yeah, know, that, uh, that was, you know, while I was at Cornell, I wasn't too sure while I was at Cairo school, I was 100% sure of what I was doing. So, um, you know, rather than spending my time learning some of the adjunct stuff, uh, from a chiropractic perspective, I was always thinking, how do I apply this to baseball? Um, and oftentimes in real time. So, um, yeah, that was, uh, that was a little bit of a different process when I was there.
0: Well, you guys, I know Ottawa, you said you were there for growing up there a little bit. I know Ottawa, they have the Ottawa champions, which is in the Can-Am league, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, so well growing up being, uh, when I was growing up and younger, they had the Ottawa Lynx, which was the uh, AAA team for uh, the Expos. So, um, you know, I, I would go to tons of games, got to see a bunch of prospects uh, kind of go through that system, you know, more so from other teams. Uh, you know, but I was fortunate enough to see like Vladdy play when he was really young. Um, and, you know, I kind of grew up playing baseball and hockey, but having that AAA team in Ottawa for a while was... Um, you know, it was big. It was a big deal for the city at the time. But uh, you know, things, things kind of went backwards. It uh, regressed a little bit, and eventually they lost that uh, that affiliate. And you know, now they have the champions. Um, and uh, they've they've had to you know make some changes throughout that time and in between. But Ottawa is I wouldn't say it's a baseball city, but there has been some some decent decent baseball in there, which is great.
0: But now you're in Toronto. Yes, I am. So are yeah. you, uh, I know Joey Votto lives there in the off season. Does he ever stop by the facility?
1: <laughs> not yet. Uh, <laughs> not yet. Uh, Toronto's, Toronto's a pretty big city. So we're, you know, it's uh, a very large metropolitan city. It's pretty dispersed. Um, yeah, I've been here now for, uh, geez, almost ten years. Um, and you know, our facility is on the east side, uh, if you if you will, of Toronto. But uh yeah, no, I wish Sarvotto would drop by one day. That'd be nice. <laughs> <laughs>
0: um when you started training baseball players, what do you think you would do differently? What what do you think if you could go back in time you would change of how you train players back then versus now? Um yeah I think the probably
1: the biggest thing that i've I've changed uh you know from start to right now um, is putting a, a, a more of an emphasis on on monitoring uh you know monitoring how they're doing from a uh you know preparedness standpoint how they're responding to the training and uh putting a lot more stock into you know looking at how the range of motion is changing over time so you know, back in the day, uh, you know, it was all about getting big and strong and, and lifting a lot of weight and, and not really uh, because of, you know, the logistics of it. There wasn't really as much time uh, for me to, you know, monitor everything and, uh, you know, as, as well as I wanted to. Uh, and then when you graduate school and, and you have a little bit more free time, um, you know, it's afforded me the opportunity to you know, dive a little bit more from a, into the monitoring process and see how guys are recovering and how they're handling the training load and, um, you know, more specifically looking at how their range of motion is, you know, going one way versus the other. So, um, you know, things have changed in that standpoint. We still, you know, lift heavy. Um, I'm not afraid of, of lifting pitchers heavy and hitters heavy. And, uh, you, know, I don't, you know, I don't really – take the uh you know rehab is everything or prehab approach as much um you know as i do getting big and strong and having you know controllable range of motion so those those would be the biggest things that i've changed um and grown over the last few years but uh there's probably a lot more to come
0: (laughs) so at your place um is there hitters and pitchers training or is it just pitchers yes
1: it's Mostly pitchers. Uh, we do have hitters as well, but uh, you know, over the last seven years,
0: it's it's been
1: way more of a priority developing pitchers. So uh, we do have our hitters. We have uh, you know a few catchers that we deal with smaller groups, but predominantly we're we're dealing with the pitchers. And yeah, uh, you know, that's it's been that way for for a few years, and um, I think it's been that way. You know, because I was a pitcher, and uh, my business partner, uh, who's, who runs all the pitching, you know, obviously he was a pitcher, and, you know, we've really hyper-focused uh, on developing that expertise and, uh, you know, trying to get as, as good of results as we, as we possibly can, but uh, it's just been more of a hyper-focus on that, and now we're, you know, growing, obviously, the hitting side of things a little bit more, but uh, predominantly pitchers,
0: yeah. I've been following um, a driveline for a while, and Kyle Bode and and all the weighted balls, and, and now they're in the hitting too. Um, is that something that you kind of do as well as as the weighted ball work for the pitchers, or how do you get 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 into the training side for pitching? Um, how how do you go about um, getting your guys ready? From from a,
1: from a pitching perspective, we do use the weighted balls. Um, you know, it's I guess when we talk about and the perception sometimes is is more of the pull downs or running guns and um, you know high effort stuff uh, with you know the smaller range of weighted balls. I think that's what people you know, typically jump to uh, when they think of that. So we do we do put an emphasis on that when we're ramping uh, intensity up just to, to essentially just try to you know put more load on the athlete and get them to feel what it's like to to go higher intensity. Um, You know, depending on the training age and and how long and and how strong uh, they are, you know, will dictate, you know, whether or not they're actually going to get into that sort of thing. But we definitely use, uh, you know, the plyo balls and the heavier plyo balls, uh, you know, from a a drill perspective and, uh, you know, trying to vary the weight and give guys a bit of a different feel when they throw. Um, So we're definitely, you know, we're definitely doing that. Uh, you know, every time they're in there, they're going to be doing their drill work with, you know, variations of, of different loads of the balls or the plow balls. And, um, you know, from a heavy, uh, you know, heavy or under slightly under load from perspective with running guns or off the mound, uh, it really depends on, on the player and, and where they are and what they're able to handle. So, um, you yeah, know, that's a little bit different from a hitting perspective. We haven't done that much, uh, yet from using the the weighted balls um we did a little bit in the summer just to get a feel of, of how that would work out but um yeah, we we honestly haven't spent that much time into it yet
0: who runs the uh the hitting side well
1: it's it's a bit of a combination between uh, um the our pitching coordinator who was actually a two-way guy at uh at Coastal Carolina, um, so he he does some of the hitting stuff, and then we uh, we brought in a catching instructor who's also hitting us So he was he was a bullpen uh, bullpen catcher for the Jays for a year, um, and he runs the hitting side as well as like with the running the catching stuff. So those two guys have have been you know implementing it, and and I don't obviously look over that. I can't hit hit for, uh, for anything, but. <laughs> Um the
0: guys are it right now, yeah. I'm not sure if you saw this the other day, but uh I know there was an article about uh, pitchers throwing harder and it you know, relating that to um Tommy John surgeries and was just curious on your opinion on what do you think the reason that so many pitchers are getting hurt or having Tommy John, especially at a really young age too, like high school kids. Um, I mean, having yeah. been throwing for that many years, um, why do you think that is?
1: Right. Um, I did read the articles. Uh, um, it's a little bit sad, honestly. I think yeah, I mean, when you talk about injury, it's, it's so multifactorial, um, to begin with that it's hard to, it's hard to pinpoint it on one or two things. Obviously when you got a lot of variables, yeah, you know, there might be, there might be a couple that stand out more or more significant than others, but you know when we talk about the Tommy John, um, you know, epidemic, which is not necessarily a word I, I like all that much, um, because I think it creates more fragility in, in, in pitchers than anything. But uh, you know when we talk about how those rates are going up, and especially in the younger age, uh, you know, I, I don't, you know, I don't necessarily know. If it's because we we're you know selecting for harder throwers nowadays more so than anything else, or you know if that's the biggest factor, or if it's a combination of that, um, you know, with more showcases, more throwing, more you know year-round competitive uh, throwing situations, and you know almost the explosion of of youth uh, paid for youth sports, so I yeah you know, I really don't know, and I don't think anyone can, can pinpoint it on a couple of things. Um, you know, but if you, ask me, it's, it's probably that selection in the game now that, uh, you know, velocity is really easy to track. It's, um, it's something that everyone's selecting for and talking about at higher levels. So there's more attention to it. And I think there's a lot more opportunity for guys to throw, um, you know, in front of scouts around and, and showcases and, um, you know, trying to get their velocity notice that, it's probably putting, you know, more cumulative stress on arms and, um yeah, than obviously what they can handle, right? Otherwise, there wouldn't be injuries. But, you know, it's, I think those would probably be, you know, the two biggest variables. But at the same time, um, you know, no one really necessarily knows the answer. Um, you know, for me, uh, I think there's a significant under-preparation, um, that's that's going on in terms of uh, weightlifting or, or strength training and um, even just ramping up and, and managing workloads. That's probably a big contributor as well. Uh, you yeah, know, from our perspective, if we got a really, really hard thrower and they're young and, and they're not necessarily skeletally mature um, and they're not strong, then, you know, that arm is, yeah, it probably doesn't need velocity training necessarily. It needs more strength training and, and at the same time it needs some considerable, you know, management of their throwing loads. So um, you know, obviously kids want to play uh because they throw hard and they get outs and they want to pitch more. But you know, I think we've got to be sure about, you know, what we're what we're asking them to do year round. Um and that doesn't necessarily mean, at least in my opinion, you know, shutting down from throwing hard year round, but uh you know, there's a difference between you know, showcasing year round and competing year round, and and you know maybe maxing up, you know, intensity in the off season. You know, once every two weeks, um, and for a limited number of throws. So, yeah, it's a it's a it's a long. That's a, I guess it's a long-winded answer, but um, I think it's it's not as simple as you know pointing the finger at just velocity. There's a lot lot of things that go into it, um, and and it's a really obviously a really difficult situation that. You know, not just one. You know, part of the country is dealing with. Everyone is dealing with, um, and we deal with it up north too. Even though we're inside six months a year, so it's it's not simple. Um, and I think we need to, you know, try to uh, try to look at alternative ways and 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 strategies, and obviously what we're doing right now. But
0: so yeah, you don't you don't think it's rolling downhill. You don't think it's a bad idea for, for for players to continue to throw. You just think it. It it's probably a bad idea for them to continue to actually play on a team year round, year round. So they can throw year round, but being in a game environment with that type of intensity, that's what they should try to avoid.
1: Yeah. Um, again, and, and this is probably a much longer conversation, but yeah, I mean, from if you look at it from uh, just you know basic physiology standpoint. And, you know, looking at how tissues, the connective tissue and muscular tissue, adapt to load. You know, when you stop loading um, those tissues, they, you know, they they will become weaker. Um, That's just the way it works. So, um, you know, that's why, you know, when guys take maybe three months off or four months off throwing and then they ramp back up, uh, potentially too fast, you're going to have an injury because the tissue is just not prepared to handle full intensity, right? So, you know, if you look at uh, – if you take that vantage point and look at a strength conditioning program where, you know, guys get bigger, stronger, and are able to produce more force, um, you know, over the course of maybe three or four months, and then you ask them to go and throw – and you ramp up too quickly while well, the tissue involved in absorbing that load, um, not just the muscle, but the connective tissue, like the ligaments and the tendons and uh, the stuff surrounding the joint itself, they may not be uh, prepared to handle that newfound force that you're able to produce. Right. Um, and if they're not, then and you keep doing what you're doing and you ramp it up too fast and maybe maybe that's um, a contributor to, to you know the soft tissue injury. But yeah, for me, if if an athlete is you know strong um, and they have adequate range of motion and strengthen that range of motion, and they want to continue throwing, and there's not um, you know anything from a a movement screen or orthopedic screen that is preventing them from throwing, I I don't um, I don't necessarily think it's it's a bad idea uh, to keep throwing uh, intensity up throughout the year. Uh, now you don't necessarily need to do a lot of frequency, um, or a lot of volume in that, uh, because that is obviously going to take away from you potentially correcting some things. Maybe you find some imbalances, um, or deficits that you want to, want to correct, um, while you're also still throwing. But, um, yeah, I don't think shutting down, you know, mandatory shutdown for, you know, X amount of time is doing anything, Uh, to help the tissue uh, prepare itself for the throwing that you're about to ask them to do. Um, So to me, it's not necessarily a, you must shut down. Uh, It's also, you know, something you have to have some caution with. Uh, You know, I don't necessarily mean that's what you do with a 12 year old or 13 year old. Um, And I do think that understanding, you know, the workload management side of things is important um, in in making those decisions. So I, I don't, I don't want anyone, if, if they hear this, to think, yo, we're going to throw year round and we're going to max out, you know, a couple of days a week, uh, year round and everything is going to be just fine. That's, that's not necessarily the case, but, um, I think when done properly and managed properly, there, there's a strong argument to be made that you can keep, uh, you know, throwing intensity up year round and, and help, you know, keep that connective tissue and, and the muscular tissue strong, specifically for throwing. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, no, that that makes sense. And I think one of the things that, that I hear a lot is is with players and parents of, of high school kids is, you know, we're going to take some time off. We're going to hit the weight room hard. You know, he's going to put on muscle. He's going to gain weight. And then we'll start to ramp it up a little bit. My question for you is, is does actually gaining weight translate into throwing harder necessarily?
1: Um it's it's a yeah i mean it depends on the person right so that's another thing where um yeah if you're developing athlete and and um you aren't necessarily strong then you know getting a little bit bigger and stronger will help in in terms of producing force um you know obviously there's a plateau with that and and I don't think anyone's, you know, able to give you, you know, that strength number or that size number for, okay, you need to, you need to now focus less on strength, more on power, um, or speed training and, um, and switch your focus. I don't think we have uh, an actual number for that, but we have a, a, you know, rough idea for, you know, when you get your strength up to a certain point, then, you know, maybe we need to put a little bit more focus on, you know, uh, mechanics, and and maybe get a little more advanced with some of the way to ball stuff. Um, But yeah, I think with high school players, you know, they aren't physically mature. They're not able to, you know, create or, um, you know, absorb force uh, all that well. And, uh, you know, getting bigger and stronger is going to provide benefit, uh, you know, at least until they get to that plateau uh, that we don't necessarily know exactly where that is but once they get to it then you know you you, you see all the time where guys just get stronger or more powerful they don't necessarily improve their you know their velocity for example um but yeah for, as a general guideline i think it's it's important to get really stronger um, especially for the developing athlete but you know at the same time uh you you have to you have to be careful i think when you get back to throwing in terms of you know ramping it up slowly and, and monitoring how that athlete's handling it because right if you spend like i said if you spend you know three four months getting bigger and stronger and now you're you're able to produce more force from a throwing perspective for example um you, know, you got to be smart about you know letting your connective tissue um you know build itself up uh, to handle that newfound ability to create force you know what i mean so um I don't think it's as simple as take three months off, get bigger, stronger, get back to throwing, and, you know, get after it, um, especially when, when guys get, you know, a big boost in strength, um, you know, in the gym over the course of three or four months if they're a high school player.
0: Yeah, it's just – it's tough because there's so much information out there that you sometimes don't even – you don't even really know, like, like, who's telling the truth and who's not. <laughs>
1: Yeah, totally. Um that's the world we live in right now, right? Where you know, you can as a player or a parent or a coach, um or even myself, you can go online and and find tons of information, go down tons of rabbit holes and not always know who's right, who's wrong, um or or, or what to do. You know, I think you know, for most parents uh, and, and and coaches, you follow the successes. Um you know, people who are successful and and seem to have some sort of rationale for why they're doing what they're doing. You know, for me, uh, you know, I always try to ask myself the question, why? You know, why are we doing this? What What is the intended effect? And you know, is there some sort of underlying, you know, physiological principle uh, or evidence to support what we're doing? So, you know, it's uh, it's it's not easy. It's definitely not easy to, to you know find the right information or already uh, to then implement it right um, especially when it comes to I think to to managing throwing workload and you know even some of that stuff that I just talked about about connective tissue like that is that's out of the realm um, even my realm a little bit, uh, you know let alone a player or a parent so it's tough uh, it it really is tough
0: well since since we have you on the show right now I want to ask you. Since I get this all the time, and I have no idea, I mean, what age should kids start throwing curveballs? Huh.
1: Um, that's a good question. So, I I don't necessarily, uh, you know, think it's bad to start, you know, playing around with curveballs um, at an early age. You know, stress to me is stress. Um,
0: when you say you know, early at age, like, like what age are you talking about?
1: i mean if if you're playing around you know playing around with curveballs when you're seven, you know you're just learning to throw you know it's not it shouldn't be the focal point of <laughs> you know learning how to throw baseball in in the realm of the actual game because throwing a curveball at seven you know it really doesn't mean that much right um you can get a lot more out of of uh being better at baseball from learning how to throw. A ball from point A to point B with some sort of accuracy than it is to learn how to throw a curveball. You know, from a stress standpoint, I don't, I don't think it's, um, you know, going to blow up your elbow or cause damage because you, you know, you you play around with your father, you know, with a grip of a curveball here and there, um, you know, and, and and just learning how to, you know, practice it if that makes sense. You know what I mean? Yeah. I think seven or eight, um, you know, seven or eight. Intervals. Obviously, doesn't have the skill set to to do that. I don't think, and they don't necessarily have the size of hands that would necessarily make sense to actually learning how to throw a curveball. But I think demonizing, uh, you know, learning to throw different pitches at, or, or, and just getting an introduction to to that from a you know an injury standpoint is, yeah, I don't I don't agree with it. Um, you know, from a learning to play the game, honestly, I think there'd be a lot you know a lot more advantage to. Learning how to throw a fastball, um, you know, uh, I- until you're at least 14. You know what I mean? Um, I think trying to learn two different, you know, pitches or three different pitches from a skill acquisition standpoint growing up, um, if you don't know how to throw a fastball, it's probably not the best way to go about it. Um, you know, you can have interference effects in a way where you know, trying to learn to throw a slider or a curveball and a changeup and a fastball at the same time is going to take away from you actually learning how to throw a fastball. So from that standpoint, you know, it's probably better to just, you know, learn how to competitively throw a fastball in-game until you're a little bit older. Um, But, again, I don't think, you know, learning to play around with different grips and throwing a ball Um, you know, non-competitively
0: is, going to just blow up your arm. When we had, uh, Bronson Arroyo on the show a couple months ago, one of the things that he would recommend is for, for kit, for players, just, uh, just to play catch with off speed. Like you're not throwing it hard. You're just, he said so much about it is just feel you want to feel, you know, have every feel for each, each different pitch. And so he would just recommend just nice, easy play catch, get the feel down, um, when you're with the off-speed pitches, um, would you go in that direction?
1: Totally. I mean, I think that's, that's, uh, you yeah. know, a really good point. Um, you know, not necessarily throwing it competitively and relying on it competitively, uh, you know, at a lighter load, uh, getting a feel for a lighter, lighter throwing intensity and, um, just playing with it. like I said, I don't, I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing to expose the other players to that. Um, you know, I, I think, again, when you introduce it into a, a competitive environment, that's a different story and a different conversation. Um, you know, Maybe guys even rely on throwing one pitch too much. and um, you know, There's an argument to be made that maybe they should be relying more on one off-speed pitch, but uh, as they get older... But I, I, yeah, I would I would definitely uh, agree with what Robson was saying um, in terms of just getting a feel for it at a younger age, um, and introducing it into a competitive environment. You know, after we have a better handle on, you know, pitching in general, um, you know, and some of the other parts of the game.
0: Well, the next next big thing, next big thing that's out, that's currently out there for um, amateur um, athletes is the pitch count. And even yep. at the big league level, I take that back. really all levels is the pitch count. How many pitches should they throw, um, at this level? I mean, what are your thoughts on the whole pitch count dilemma? Uh,
1: yeah, it's, uh, it comes, it, again, it comes back to, you know, a little bit more from, from a physiological standpoint. So yeah, pitch counts at, at a younger age, I think, you know, implementing guidelines and rules, um, are a great idea just to prevent, you know, pitchers from doing too much. You know, having said that, um, you know, you can get around that by, you know, pitching in showcases and, and pitching in, in different leagues that don't necessarily have the same pitch rules and, and pitch counts. Um, you know, I think just having having those guidelines is a good step to prevent players from throwing way too much, especially, you know, players you throw harder and are selected for um, from doing that too much. I know in Ontario, they're, they're revising their rules, but uh, what we've had in place here for the last little bit, and I don't think it's going to change for a year or two, um, but I could be wrong on that is if you're 15 or 16, you can throw, you know, 90 pitches in a competitive game on a Friday um, and then come back on Sunday and do the exact same thing without penalty, Whoa. Um, which is, yeah, um, kind of insane, I mean, you ask me, but the guidelines, I think, are, you know, the, the new pitch, the pitch mark guidelines like that, um, and that's kind of what they're implying here, um, is to prevent that sort of situation, um, and it's to, you know, put a limit on how often you're going to be able to throw. You know, with that said, um, you know, guidelines for the number of pitches, you know, it's, we've fallen on, you know, at an older age on a number around a hundred is, you know, what is, is shown to be at least now what everyone thinks is the safe number. But, you know, if you look at the number of injuries in terms of shoulders and elbows um, and the rates, it's, you know, the shoulder injuries have gone down over the last decade. The elbow injuries have gone up essentially stayed at about the same
0: injury rate.
1: Um, so I don't necessarily think, you know, looking at the problem from, you know, this is, this is the number of pitches you need to throw, um, uh, you know, roughly in a game and, and, uh, you know, taking that perspective is, is solving anything. So, you know, for me, again, it comes down to, you know, what are we trying to do from a teaching perspective? Um, I think that we don't manage throwing load in the off season as well as we probably should, or even in season, um, but yeah, I, I don't think imposing at an older age, imposing strict pitch counts and uh, innings logged, is you know the, the best way to look at the problem. I think it's it's more you know how we're handling that load uh, coming you know into the season and you know keeping an eye on um, you know throwing loads throughout the year in terms of how how players actually handling that. So um, you know we can't necessarily throw on uh you know an imaging device to look at everyone's elbow you know as they go throughout the year but you know if if you have the availability to do that and you have the reasons to do that i think that'd be an interesting thing to look at um and really try to understand what's going on you know at the tissue level um you know handling those loads so at a younger age for sure they're good uh you know as you get older it's it's um to me it's it's a little bit more difficult kind of a question to solve or complex question to solve
0: man i just i can't get over 90 pitches on a friday and you'd be allowed to come back on a sunday and throw 90 more
1: yeah um and and the 90 number that might be you know it might be right under 90 so you can get away with 89 something like that (laughs) um you know the numbers are a little bit you know a little bit lesser when you're younger um you know but i i went through it as a pitching coach not too long ago where you know, we play teams, and they throw their stud on, on a Friday and come back with them on Sunday. they beat us twice in a tournament, um, you know, and ask that kid to, you know, play shortstop in between. So, um, yeah, it happens. And, and uh, you yeah, know, I think there are far worse things that are probably happening outside of this little loop uh, with players. But, yeah, it is uh, it is what it is.
0: Isn't that cra- It's crazy that these summer coaches – I mean, I don't know if they're they like they put 'em on salary but or something like that because it it makes it they, they play the coach the game as if like their life's on the line and like this is like their their career. Like if they win this tournament then they're gonna get a bonus or I don't even know what, but it's just insane that they're so obsessed with winning that they'll do whatever it takes for um a high school tournament to win it all.
1: Yeah. Um yeah, absolutely. So uh, you know the coaches the coaches here are by and large not paid. There's no financial incentive to win. Um, I think it's just a lack of of education and understanding and, and being informed on you know you know what's right and what's wrong. Um, you know when you're when you're following the rules outlined by you know like the province for example, um at the time and you know as a coach and you, know, you don't know anything else it everything's okay you know i'm doing what i'm asked to do uh or asked to 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 be done so you yeah, know i think from that perspective yeah it's you know there's still an education component that really needs to be pushed out there and i think that's why um you know that's why there's there's a lot of incentive uh you know, for, for people that podcast like yourself and try to disseminate as much information as you possibly can. Um, because, you know, we argue sometimes on, on social media about the, the most minute things like, um, <laughs> you know, the like weighted loss or weighted balls being dangerous or not when, you know, we have coaches doing, you know, kind of what I just outlined um, and have no idea what's going on, on the most simplest of, of, of things and things that you think were rational, um and and pretty straightforward so um yeah it's 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 wild um it it is wild and I remember at the time you know going through that thinking like this can't be a real thing um this can't be a real thing but it is
0: yeah it's a shame I mean I'm actually going to be coaching helping him be assistant coach for a summer team um since the Cincinnati Flames next summer so i mean hell maybe right. i'll end up being like one of those coaches um i don't know who knows i mean <laughs> I, I would be <laughs> very surprised
1: <laughs> yeah hopefully not um yeah so you know i don't i don't obviously have a team um you know but my message for the parents and the kids for the most part is you know it's not it's not necessarily about the wins and losses it's um you know it's about enjoying your time And, you know, ensuring that you do it safely and and you see progression from a development standpoint. So, you know, for the players that we deal with, you know, they're all trying to trying to get out of Canada and and play uh, collegiate baseball down south or, or play professional baseball and uh you know wins and losses with their team they're great and they're great experiences and and something that you know you look back on you know when you're a little bit older and remember how much fun you had you know but at the same time uh, you really have to prioritize you know physical development and and ensuring that you're, you're you know you're safe so um you know for us the message is to to try to you know be smart about how much you're doing and what you're doing and managing it and you know, if if that means your team loses, then that means your team's your team loses. Um and you're not necessarily yeah, I don't think you're gonna regret losing a game in a tournament that, you know, you're fifteen or sixteen. Um but you will probably regret having to undergo a surgery um and you know, potentially missing the opportunity to play baseball at a higher level.
0: Love that. For sure, for sure. Um, let's get back into the training um, aspect of it a little bit. One of the things that I think people are confused on a little bit is the the sets and reps of, of what how much to do for each exercise. Um, you know, should they max out? What are What are your thoughts on that?
1: Um. Yeah. I, I mean, we rarely have guys max out. So, uh, you know, when you're when you're a novice lifter and you don't really have much experience in the weight room or training um you know we we essentially start them off on a very basic um lower type volume uh lifting program to make sure you know we pick our our big three um or big four and we hammer them out over the course of a couple sessions of the week but you know the volume and, and and the intensity is a little bit lower we spend a lot more time you know going through slow repetitions and feeling out the movement and, and ensuring that, you know, their technique is, is up to speed. Um, so there's, there's not really any max loading going on and, um, the repetitions, you know, are between five and eight for the most part, but, you know, the time that we take to complete a repetition is going to be a lot longer than if we have, you know, an intermediate or more, you know, more advanced lifter, uh, where they're trying to move the weight as fast as possible. So, you know, when you're starting out, I think, you know, it's really important to, uh, you know, keep in mind that learning the movement is is no different than learning any other movement and you need to take your time with it and, you know, let the weight come over time and um, not necessarily go for a fast fry approach of you trying to hurry to to get bigger and stronger, and and think of it more from a slow cook perspective where, you know, you're learning the movement, you're you're learning to control your body and and feel things out and, and slowly add weight and, you know, more intensity over time. Um, you know, with our our more intermediate lifters, which is the majority, um, if not all of the high school lifters that we have, um, and and even college guys, you know, we, we again we don't really max out all that often. Uh, we keep the volume fairly low. Um, you know, relative to uh, you know the beginning. So depending on the what day we're doing and and what program we have, if if you're looking, you know, to build strength, then you're going to work in a lower rep range um, than you are if you're, you know, trying to put on a little bit of of size or or work capacity necessarily, so you're going to work a little bit higher there. But for the most part, we don't stray um, too, too far from, yeah, eight repetitions is pretty much the highest we'll go. Um, for the most part, guys are working in the two to six range, um, kind of regardless of what they're doing. And then we'll play around with the, you know, the number of sets and, um, you know, really, really depends on, on, you know, the player and how they're handling everything. Right. So that's, again, I think why monitoring, monitoring how players are doing and, you know, how they're responding to whether it's throwing, hitting, running, or lifting weights is, is so important because everyone everyone kind of adapts at their own speed. Um, you know, you could have two, two high school lifters who are, you know, maybe, in, you know, in their junior year and they're the same weight, the same height, same training experience, but you start a new program with them. And one guy moves faster than the other and you have to change things up. So, um, yeah, we're pretty flexible from that standpoint. We like to, to monitor and make changes more frequently than, um, you know, maybe other places do, but, uh, yeah, from a, you know, sense and reps perspective at the beginning, you, you know, you're just trying to, you're trying to feel out the movement. You're trying to learn it and take your time with it. And then, you know, as you advance, um, you know, your training age and your experience and, you know, you can bring up the intensity a little bit more and, um,
0: you know, drop down the
1: volume a little bit more, but we don't, we hardly ever, ever max max up. Um, and we try to stay away from that a little bit.
0: One of the things that uh, that you see online is people um, ripping the bench press for pitchers, and do you have your pitchers ever bench press?
1: We do bench press. Um, uh We do bench press. Yeah. So we we bench press, uh, and, and this is I think this is uh, you know part of the reason I think it's important to have a good evaluation process and assessment process. So you know if we take a, uh, every one of our players. Who comes in and, and, and becomes uh, you know a member of the program? They'll have me on the table for about an hour, and we go through a pretty lengthy physical, orthopedic history um, to tease out you know what's going on, what have you, what issues have we had in the past, and then try to figure out how your joints move. So with the bench press, um, you know the big the big issue that that people have is obviously with the shoulder and having some laxity in the shoulder and. You know, if you bench press, you let your humerus, you know, kind of go uncontrolled potentially into the wrong spot. and You you just kind of exacerbate the problem. Um, We screen that out. So, you know, if a player um, doesn't have control of their shoulder um, and they don't have control of of how they're going to handle, you know, that shoulder in that movement, then they're not going to bench press, um, at least until they have control of that movement. Uh, if, if they do have control of the movement, I don't. I don't really see a big problem uh, with the bench press. We do it. We think it's important to build. I think it's important to build strength. Um, you know, in the, in the tissue at the front of the shoulder, especially in that in that position where the you know uh, where the elbow kind of goes backwards. Uh, I think that's important. I, I think it needs to be done correctly. It needs to be assessed out um, right away. If you know, if a guy is is not going to handle that well, then they shouldn't be doing it. But um, like most other things in in the gym, there's no end all be all. Right. So, um, you know, doing bench press or not doing bench press isn't going to be, isn't going to be the thing that adds you five miles an hour. Right. Um, Same as doing a front squat versus the back squat. In my opinion, is not going to be the thing that, you know, gets you or doesn't get you five miles an hour necessarily. It's more so what are your joints able to to do? um, and, And then, Screening out what they can't do, try to get better at that, and then fit the exercise to what the athlete is presenting you with on on a table.
0: Does that make sense? No, that makes sense. I I just brought that up because you you hear so many people saying you increase your chances of getting injured as a pitcher, especially if you bench press. And so that's why I've even seen – Personally, a lot of people do like the neutral bench press, like with the uh, with the handles or whatever. Where yep. you know your elbows aren't going out; they're going right down to your right next to your rib cage, um, because they, they just think it's it's really bad to have your elbows, I guess, going more out when you bench. press. Yeah, which
1: is which is interesting, right? Because uh, you know, if you if you look at slow motion of, of of elite throwers, they will get into essentially a bench press position um, you know, when, when they're about to get into, you know, start, start external rotation on their shoulder. So they're getting into that position, uh, you know, on the mound. Uh, so why are we, why are we so quick to, you know, to avoid that position in the gym? You know what I mean? That's a good so point. it's, it, it's an interesting, an interesting, uh, you know, vantage point, I would say perspective on the bench for us. I, I Again, I think it uh it depends on, on what their shoulder looks like on the table and how well they can tolerate that position to begin with. But, you know, if they're getting into that position on the mound or, or in their sport or in their game, then we need to physically prepare them to handle that. That's kind of the whole point of being a strength and conditioning coach is is to, you know, have an athlete be physically prepared to handle their sport and excel at their sport. So, you know, if that joint is gonna go there when they're throwing, then why are we so quick to you know, it's a rule out doing that and mimicking it, at least to stress to a degree in the gym. Right. So, um, yeah, I've never really, I've never really shied away from bench press. Um, you know, I think, I think it's certain guys, obviously you need to, but, um, you yeah, know, I think we've, we've demonized it and we've been quick to demonize it, um, for whatever reason, you know, part of, part of that as well is, you know, the, the idea that, uh, you know, if we lift weights, it's going to make us tight. Or, um, you know, if we lift the bench press, for example, we're going to be tight in the front of the shoulder. And, you know, that's going to affect our, our ability to move um, on the mound, which uh, is not necessarily true. Um, you know, there is uh, there's not a, a, a direct relationship between lifting heavy weight and being tight. That's not, not really how it works. Um, but if you are doing bench press a lot and you do get tight and you can't move through your shoulder, then obviously that's a problem. Um, but that's not necessarily, that doesn't necessarily mean that bench pressing is going to make you tight and it's going to restrict the way that you throw them out. So, um, we still do it. <laughs> Funny answer. We, we <laughs> hey, that, that's good
0: <laughs> enough for me. I was, I was, uh, listening to Tyson Fury, I believe the other day, actually, I believe right. he's a boxer. Um, he was talking about overtraining and how he would rather be out of shape, fat, than overtrain from a power perspective. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering, it can you say the same thing from a, a pitcher, from a pitching perspective, or a hitter? Just like in general for a baseball player, is it worse to overtrain and not have that explosive movement um, and feel strong and, and all that that goes with it than um, having the the other effect?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, those are those are to me those are two. Uh two polar ends on the spectrum and I think the answer is always going to kind of be, you know, more towards the middle. Right. So, you know, on the one hand you could do absolutely nothing and not train and, and, you know,
0: be out of shape. Uh, <laughs> I guess he would no, say. Yeah. I'm fat. not recommending that. Yeah. I'm just, I just thought it was yeah. interesting when he said that.
1: All right. Well, I think overtraining is, uh, know yeah, that's a real thing. Um, yeah, I don't know how often you get into an overtraining state. I think it's a little bit overstated. Um, and, you know, when guys are you know, feeling a little tired or fatigued, you know, we're quick to, to say they're overtraining and they they obviously, you know, need to take a week off or deload. De- de- right. But um, yeah, you can definitely overtrain and, and you can push your body, you know, past where, you know, it, it needs to be from a preparation standpoint. But I think it also, that just really calls to the importance of monitoring how athletes are doing over time. Right. So, you know, you want to, you want to get measurements on, you know, something that matters. And and if you're a pitcher, that might be, you know, velocity. So if you're measuring that over time and, you know, that's trending down, well, you got to have to dig a little bit deeper and figure out why that is. Is it because, you know, they're, they're not, uh, you know, recovering well, um, or, or is it something else? Um, But to me, it just kind of speaks to the importance of, of monitoring, you know, how they're doing. So it's a little bit harder. Uh, and there's a lot of different ways you can go about doing it. It's a little bit harder if you don't have the resources, um, you know, or the tools to do it. But something as simple as, as just subjectively getting, you know, getting a subjective answer from an athlete, you know, how are you feeling today? Um, and doing that consistently over time, I think, is, is a valuable tool. Um, you know, we use subjective wellness questionnaires to, you know, see how an athlete is, is scoring their sleep or their soreness or their tiredness, um, you know, as, as a means of, you know, figuring out how they're handling what we're asking them to do. And if you know, if that is trending downwards, um or or we see an acute change in that, then you know, maybe they are potentially overtraining and we need to, you know, put the brakes on a little bit. But um yeah, it's a real thing and, and I think you know, uh, we always have to be careful about how, you know, how much we're asking athletes to do. And that, you know, it doesn't mean just throwing, it means how much are you doing in the gym? You know, we often get guys who are in the gym, uh, yeah, you know, they're, they're with us three days a week. And, you know, they tell me that they're also working another three days outside of the gym. And I'm like, well, uh, that's probably not the greatest idea because I don't know what you're doing, but you know, um, you know, if you're not monitoring how you're, how you're responding to that. Uh, maybe you're potentially training too much and that's why your lifts aren't improving. But um, yeah, that's, that's something I think, you know, we have to be careful with because a lot of athletes always, you know, they have a tendency, the ones who are really into it, they have a tendency to to do too much. Um, They want to do more to get better rather than, uh, you know, potentially taking the breaks, uh, putting the breaks on and taking a recovery day or um, a couple of recovery days a week and, um, especially with the younger guys, that they just don't have the ability to handle, you know, more than 2 or 3 sessions a week.
0: Speaking of length of training, um how long should a session be for lifting? I've heard if kids lifting for 2 hours, is that, I mean, where where do you stand on how long you have your athletes train for? Yeah, I think that's really unreasonable. That's uh, what I thought.
1: <laughs> yeah, if even if you're a professional athlete, I think 2 hours is um, you know, for f- For pure physical output is unreasonable. Um, You know, our guys are they're lifting weights. Uh, You know, right now the younger guys, so they're the high school age players. The max they'll go is an hour um, of lifting weights. I think you can get away with with lifting hard for forty five minutes for all high school players for the most part and be totally fine three days a week. Um, You know, because I think what ends up happening is you know, you're in there for, for an extended period of time, not only are you, you know, accumulating too much fatigue, but you know I think it, there's a, there's a degree of, of athletes just not having the intent for every rep. Right. So, um, it's hard enough getting athletes to have, you know, a hundred percent intent, um, on, on five reps, let alone, you know, prolonging that over an hour and a half, you know, you're gonna, their attention span to begin with is, is limited. So, um, for me, you know, forty five minutes to an hour is, is more than enough. Now, uh, you know, you can be in the gym and do other things. Uh, you know, like for us they have a monitoring process, uh, you know, writing stuff down and they have a process for, you know, going through their joints and assessing how their joints are handling everything, and that's not necessarily stress, um or high level stress. So, you know, they might have twenty minutes of that. So you know, if you add that to the 45-hour, then they might have an hour and a half in the gym, but they're only physically working hard for 45 to an hour max. Um, two hours to me is, is unreasonable. At a certain point, your body just can't handle that. Um, and I don't necessarily know why you'd want to go that long anyways. So um, I would stay away from that, 45 to an hour. Stay there. <laughs> do, you,
0: do you have uh, pitchers who come to you uh, post-Tommy John surgery and, and you're responsible for their rehab?
1: Yep. Um, yeah, for sure. So I have the luxury of being able to treat, train, um, treat and train at the same place. So, you know, part of the reason uh, why, you know, we created the uh, the Baseball Development Group was to have everything kind of integrated in one house. So, you know, at any point in time, uh, an athlete will, you know, can come to us whether they're hurt, they need to get stronger, they need to, perform better um, and just keep them kind of in a continuous uh, you know line of care where you know things aren't segregated and, and lines of communication aren't you know uh, up so having someone uh, you know go through the entire process under one roof uh, whether that's with one practitioner or multiple is a huge advantage because you have, you have a really good understanding of the athlete uh, you have a really good understanding of where they are and, and how they're handling everything. Um, so I think it's it's a huge plus and I think, you know, if if the you know, facilities had the luxury of doing that, it would be, you know, a much more prevalent thing. The unfortunate reality I think logistically is, you know, baseball facilities having a, a, a trainer there even part time, it's just it's just not enough incentive. There's not enough business. So it's hard to, to pull that off but yeah, we do it. Um, and it's, it's a really humbling experience when, you know, you go from doing that in a private clinic and not really seeing how they're throwing or how they're lifting is going to, to seeing it all in, in one roof, um, and, and seeing the whole process because, you know, oftentimes I found, at least in, in private practice, you would have false positives uh, in terms of how you're doing with an athlete, um, because you're not getting the whole picture. and, and you don't really see, uh, you know, the struggles, or, or and there are there are always struggles. You don't really get a good picture of the struggles and um, the down points as well when you're you only subjected to the to the one thing. But um, I think that uh, that integration process of, of having you know, therapy involved with you know the the, the training, whether it's strength or um, or skill, is is where you know potentially where the future is going for this sort of thing, where you know you're bridging the gap uh, between those three things, and um, you know those, those three you know compartments and components areas right, of, of getting better at baseball. Um, I think that's where everyone's going to eventually you know lead to because it's it's just integrated. Integrated is it really cuts off the miscommunication and um, expedites the the process of whether it's recovery or performance improvement.
0: Speaking of of injuries and and rehabbing and stuff like that, I had a hamstring surgery and after I had the surgery, everything was fixed or everything, but I was still so sore. And and so it was up high is where the attachment took place. Mm -hmm. And I, I literally couldn't, I couldn't figure it out. Like nobody could, you know, really like you can't just massage it out um, just regular massage. So actually I went to somebody, um, in Cincinnati, his name's Andy Shutterly and he did the active release technique, um, which is for soft tissue for, you know, muscles, ligaments, tendons, all that stuff. They usually respond well to that. And it's, it literally, I, I, I haven't had, I never had a problem after that, after three or four sessions of, of going through that. Um, have you ever, um, done that? Yeah.
1: So I've, um, I am certified or was certified because I didn't research every year. Um, my guarantee like with active release streaming and active release technique. Um, so I went through those courses and then I went through, uh, the functional release courses, which it's similar, but you know, the methodology seems similar, but the underlying rationale is, you know, in, in large contrast to, to ART right now. But yeah, I think, uh, you know the soft tissue stuff and, and having a quality manual therapist involved in the process and like it obviously worked for you but having them involved in the process of uh you know even performance games is is really important uh and and you'd see a really big spike in terms of how players are doing and feeling um even just subjectively from from having them exposed to it relatively frequently um so yeah, we, I mean that's that again. That's the beauty of of doing uh, having what we have is I can at any given moment if a player is you know feeling something that you know is is uh, a new sensation or they're tight or or sore or stiff or anything like that, I can throw them on the table on the spot, work on it, and then immediately get them back into the into their drill or their lift. Um, so it's it's really awesome to be able to do that and you know you learn i think a lot faster uh from a what works what doesn't work perspective but yeah the integration of that right into into the, you know the, the training side of things is is i don't i don't the word game changer but um it's, it's it can be a pretty significant boost uh for the athletes for sure
0: yeah absolutely steven really really appreciate uh you coming on today um drop some great content for everybody. And, um, I learned a lot. I know um, everyone listening, um, will as well. So again, really appreciate it.
1: All right. Thanks a lot. Um, you know, again, like I said, I think it's, it's really important to, you know, to have, you know, some, some conversations on stuff like this and and for you to, you know, continue pushing out content and, and information and educating as many people as we possibly can. Um, you know, at the end of the day, like I said, there are still, you know, we, we sometimes on social media, you know, people are fighting for, you know, minutiae when there are much bigger problems um, and we need to, to reach as, as many as many people as possible. So, you yeah, know, I appreciate being on the podcast and, um, you know, really, really appreciate, you know, the work that you put into it and try to spread more information.
0: Thank you.